May I say as a pastor, I want God's best for you. I really am pulling for you. I am praying for you. I am praying that you do well. I I can relate to what Paul says, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. And there are so many of you here today, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. And I want you to know what an encouragement it's been to me. We call that encouraging faithfulness. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians and the third chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. A few years ago, I was actually over in Athens, Greece, and I was there with, uh, with friends, I was there with believers. But back in 51 AD, Paul was in Athens, but he was alone, alone in Athens. He had sent uh, Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the church there, and he himself kind of struck out there in, in Athens, so he moved over to Corinth about 50 miles west. <laughs> Wasn't much better over there. And, and he's waiting for news on how the church is doing at Thessalonica. And he's, he's pacing back and forth like a caged lion, just dying to know how they're doing. He cared. He had gotten involved in their lives. You cannot give your time and your treasure and your talent to something without caring. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And so he was feeling something because he had mentored these folks. And now he's desperately waiting to hear back from Timothy. Well, good news came. The church in Thessalonica was doing great. And so with quill in hand, he takes and he writes this letter back to them with his heart gushing with joy. He has these things to say. We pick it up in chapter 3 here in verse number 5. He says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter having tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord." We find that the news was so encouraging that it fired up Paul. The faithfulness of those folks at Thessalonica was such an encouragement. That's what we'll be talking about today. Encouraging faithfulness, or what we would call inspiring faithfulness. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we do thank you now for this passage and this time to look into it, be challenged and helped and encouraged and somewhat provoked even unto faithfulness ourselves. Help us now to listen carefully and to get these truths from it. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it. Amen. Back ten days after uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed, there were a group of folks in North Platte, Nebraska, who had heard a rumor that a, a train of their troopers was heading west and coming through North Platte. Their boys from their city there. Oh, they got so excited, they made sandwiches, they got chips together and soda and, and, and little, little care packages for the soldiers. But to their dismay, when it came into town, it, it wasn't their boys. It was actually another group of National Guardsmen, Company D from Kansas instead of Company D from Nebraska. Well, 
They said, we've got all this stuff ready, so they fed it to those boys and encouraged them. And, and uh, the train left, and a few days later, a young lady in town by the name of Faye Wilson wrote a letter to the editor in the local paper and said, you know what, folks, he, citizens, that was such a blessing and that was so encouraging to be able to be an encouragement to those, those boys going off to war. Why don't we do that to other trains that come through our city here? And, and the people got kind of excited about it. So the, the folks of North Platte, Nebraska, started doing that to every train that came through. They got sandwiches ready. They got sodas and chips and cookies. And they even would make a birthday cake in case somebody on board was having a birthday and they could celebrate it. They got magazines and books and other things that they gave to the boys. And train after train came through. And as the years turned uh, into to more years, they kept this up until every day a train was coming through. And they were encouraging the troops. And finally, after four and a half years of this, on April 1st, 1946, the war was over and the last train pulled out. And they found that they had received as much of a blessing as they had been to those soldiers that they had encouraged That's really the way it works, folks. There's something about faithfulness that is is a reciprocating thing, and it works both ways to where both parties are encouraged. You know, when I think of what the devil is trying to prevent, his first work, of course, would be the salvation of souls. He does not want to see the lost come to a saving knowledge of Christ or be, as Jesus called it, born again. But if somebody does get saved, I think the next assault on a new believer is to somehow trip them up out of the blocks and cripple their newfound faith and assault their newfound faith. The book or the the epistle of 1 Thessalonians was written on the heels of Timothy, a young preacher, coming back to Corinth, I believe, where Paul was. And he has fresh tidings. That church up in Thessalonica is doing great. Oh, that makes Paul's heart swell with joy. To hear that they still loved him, they wanted to see him, uh, that made Paul's heart sore. What good news that was. You remember where this all started, where in Acts chapter 16, Paul is trying to go into, into a certain vicinity of the world, and he gets the Macedonian call. Remember that? That Macedonian call would take him into Europe, in the evangelization of Europe. First stop is Philippi. How do things go? Well, he gets thrown in prison after getting beaten up. I mean, they they maul him there at Philippi. And so from there, he goes to Thessalonica. Well, they give him a hard time in Thessalonica. So from there, he goes to Berea. And the, the Jews of Thessalonica follow him to Berea, and they give him a hard time there, and they chase him out of town. So he goes down to Athens. And in Athens, they mock him. Nobody listens to him. He's a joke. And so now he moves over to Corinth, and things aren't going much better there. It's a really, really scary place. And so Paul needed some encouragement. Paul needed something that would encourage his heart. And certainly the faithfulness of other Christians would encourage his heart. Timothy, he returns. He's brimming with good news. Those folks are doing great. The devil has not been able to to trip up those young converts out of the blocks. And they'd had, they had survived that onslaught, and Paul is glad. As we talk about encouraging faithfulness, we find here in this passage of four verses three things, and we'll be talking about them. The first is what I call demonic futility. Demonic futility. Notice in verse number five, Paul starts out by saying, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter, having tempted you, and our labor notice be in vain. 
He says, I was, I was fearful that there had been this demonic interference and this futility that just destroyed everything that we tried to do here. Notice how he starts out verse 5. For this cause when I could no longer forbear. Sounds familiar. Look in verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear. What's that mean? Paul said, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't stand it anymore. Wherefore, when I could no longer forbear, I just had to know how you were doing. It tells me that Paul was concerned. It tells me that he may have even been worried. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. We're not supposed to worry. I mean, Bible says be careful for nothing, right? In other words, don't be full of care over anything. Take no thought for the moral. And there's so many verses about not fearing. That's unbelief. And, and yeah, I know all that. And if the fear is toward ourselves, and if the care is toward ourselves, and if it's inward, it's a selfish thing. But that's not where Paul's concern was, was it? He wasn't thinking about himself. He died to self. Paul was concerned about these other folks and the well-being of others. We read what Paul wrote over in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 24. He said, let no man seek his own, but every man another's will. Doesn't mean his money, but his well-being. Don't seek your own well-being. Seek somebody else's well-being. Paul wasn't worried about himself. Paul was worried about these other folks up north there, and that was a sign of his love. The, the reason the dad of the prodigal was pacing the floor back and forth, waiting for his son to come home, wasn't because he was worried about himself. He was concerned about his son. And, and Paul was concerned about the faith of these folks back there in Thessalonica. It was, it was really a supreme show of his love that he had for them. And he says in verse 5, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear... I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter having tempted you in our labor be in vain. Notice he says, I was concerned. I sent Timothy back. I wanted to know if you guys still were keeping the faith, lest the tempter has tempted you. Who's the tempter? Well, it's talking about this demonic futility we're talking about here, the devil. And there are some folks, and, and they would say, ha, 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 I don't believe in the devil. You know, I read this quote this last week. There is no devil so bad as no devil. Erskine said that. There is no devil so bad as, quote, no devil. In other words, to get society to believe there's no devil, that's exactly what the devil wants. Not to think there's any such thing as a devil. There is no devil so bad as no devil. Now, I made an observation this last week. Never had really noticed this before, but the Old Testament doesn't mention the devil as much as the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that? I got to thinking about Old Testament places where the devil's mentioned, and it's just a handful. It's, of course, Genesis. He slithers into the garden there, and, and he tempts Eve. And we find him also, his, his uh, beginning is found actually in Isaiah 14 and uh, Ezekiel 28. And then, of course, we find the devil mentioned in the book of Job, and this cosmic uh, contest is taking place there, and, and Job's in the middle of it. We also find this over in 1 Chronicles 21.1, that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Remember that scenario? So the devil's involved in that. And then we find a passage over in Zechariah 3.1. He showed me Joshua the high priest and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee. So you find a handful of places in the Bible where the devil is mentioned, but boy, there's a plethora of them over in the New Testament, and the warnings abound. 
And, and, and you find more frequency and you find more sterner warnings. And you say, why is that, Pastor? Well, I don't know, but it could be that our time is short now and, and the attacks of Satan are more intense and, and the warnings from God are, are more frequent. And so at the end of verse number 5, Paul says, lest by some means the tempter having tempted you and our labor be in vain. The tempter having tempted you these Christians, these young converts, through allurement, the devil pulls them over. Through apostasy, he gets them away from true doctrine. He brings false teachers across their, their path and, and heresy, and, 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 or even he roughs them up. And so how are they to overcome all this attack, this, this tempter tempting them? How do we overcome it? Well, in James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This really works, by the way. It ought to. It's in the Bible. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And it's a whole, whole other sermon here. How? But resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, Paul was well aware of the wiles of Satan, and he knew he was a dirty fighter, and, and he knew what he would try and do here. And, and, and Paul knew it was coming there at Thessalonica. How... The pressure there was, was so idolatrous to, to, to compromise. Just, just give a little dash of salt to this heathen offering here, whatever it might be, and, and how the people there would succumb to that. And so Paul was praying for them. He knew how the devil worked. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says to another church, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted. Paul was well aware of who was working here, the tempter. And though there were, there were Jews there at Thessalonica trying to trip up the young converts, Paul looked past them. We need to look past them. It's really the devil at the helm here. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? And so there is a dirty devil at work looking for the weak spot, if you will. In the days of old, if they had a city, uh, it had walls around it. And if an opposing army came in to take that city, they'd always survey the walls. They'd get back at a distance and they'd look for a low spot. Or maybe some spot that was weak that they could batter there. Or, or maybe uh, something that was easy to scale or, or the least fortified. They were looking for a weak spot. That's what a lion in Africa will do. He'll look for the weakest zebra or the weakest gazelle. You know what the devil will quite often look for? He'll look for a discouraged saint. He'll look for a, a suffering saint, somebody who's going through it at the time. And, and that person is going to be the easiest to attack and to get them to dip the banner or to take a seat on the sidelines or to apostatize. That's the vulnerable one who will uh, start to criticize or, or start to murmur or start to complain. That's the one that he can get to get bitter at God and to drop out of church. The devil knows exactly what he's doing. He'll look for that weak one there. We find this in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We don't have to be ignorant of his devices. We know how he works. Now, notice again in verse 5. Paul says, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith. Your faith. He wanted to know how their faith was doing. Doesn't even ask how their bank account's doing or other things, but how's their faith? Why did he want to know about their faith? 
Because faith is a victory that overcomes the world. We find Christ say this in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. How is your faith doing today? If, if the devil, if the tempter could sift Simon as wheat, how much more us? And the Lord was concerned about Simon's faith here. How is your faith? How is your trust? How is your confidence in God? We find in Ephesians 6.16, the Bible says above all. <laughs> that's quite a statement there. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith we shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's the devil again. It mentions the armor of God, but it says above all, having that shield of faith. There's something about faith. So Paul mentions that in verse number 5. Now notice what else he says. He says, And for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter having tempted you, notice this part, and our labor be in vain. You ever labored in vain? Paul's talking here about basically having nothing to show for his effort, and that church up there in Thessalonica just being a washout. Have you ever spent hours doing something and nothing came of it? And you went, that was a waste of time. Or maybe days, let's be honest, days. And you go, that was in vain. I hate to waste time. I hate for something to be in vain. Sometimes a poor planning, sometimes procrastination, sometimes, I don't know about you, but perfectionism and overdoing it or, or managing by crisis management and, and, and you're working hard but you're not getting much done and you waste time. We should hate to waste time, folks. We can waste a lot of time on smartphones, can't we? Amen. We can waste a lot of time on Facebook, can't we? Yeah, amen again. Uh, we can waste a lot of time on uh, Xbox. I don't, I don't even know what it is, but, but I guess people waste time on it. Or TV or, or YouTube or, or uh, obsessions as they might be. We can, we can spend time in things that are in vain. Paul didn't waste any time on that. What Paul focused on was spiritual stuff. He spent his time on, on spiritual things, making investment in souls. And, and, and he had made an investment up there in Thessalonica. But now he's going, I, I, I hope that the tempter didn't tempt you and our labor be in vain. I don't know about you. I have spent hundreds of hours over uh, 35, 36 years working with people spiritually. And, and uh, quite often it ends up in vain. You know what I'm talking about? You, you invest so much time in folks. If I had a dollar for every hour, I'd invest in folks and, and nothing to show for it. And I know what Paul's talking about here, laboring in vain. He mentions in Galatians 4.11, he said, I'm afraid of you lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. He's talking to churches here that were capitulating, and he's saying, this concerns me. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 49.4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for naught and in vain. You ever done something for God and it was going along, and then it just collapsed. And you said, well, that was in vain. Well, I have good news for you. I have a verse for you. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, it might be in vain in other areas of the world, but your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
Paul wondered, is this all in vain here? And sometimes it seemed like it. A Demas would forsake him. He'd go, boy, lost him. Or a Diotrephes would go rogue and, and he would say, I lost him. Well, God help us at least to be faithful to the end, to be, to be standing for truth when this thing is over with. There was a, uh, an emperor back in the 300s, right around 325 A.D. Up to that point, the Roman emperors had been putting the Christians to death and, and persecuting them. But an emperor by the name of Constantine came along and he outlawed that. But actually it goes back to his dad. Const- his name was Constantinus, or Constantius, I think it was, Constantius. And Constantius passed this edict. And this edict said that all Christians have to denounce their faith or they will lose all their property. Boy, there are a number of folks who forsook the Lord and and denounced their faith, but there were a number that stood firm. And, And this emperor at the time, Constantius, actually flipped the coin around and he banished those who had denounced their faith and took their property. He called them hypocrites. And then he made this statement. Not the best looking guy, by the way, is he? But uh, he made this statement. He said, they can never be true to their emperor who are false to their maker. They can never be true to their emperor who are false to their maker. These folks at Thessalonica stayed true. They didn't cave in. There was no futility there, and Paul was thankful for that. We see the demonic futility, but secondly, we see this dynamic faith. In verse number 6, Paul says, But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. Now, let's back up here. In fact, let's put something on the overhead to help you to understand the picture here. When Paul got the Macedonian call, he went way up north there. And and Philippi is not on this map. Actually, this is a modern-day map of Greece where these cities are located. And and, and Thessaloniki is still a city there. The same town is still there. And, And so Paul went to Philippi. They ran him out there. He went to Berea. They ran him out there, uh, or to Thessalonica. They ran him out there, and then Berea. And then he came down, and the red arrow there is Athens. And things went south in Athens. So he moved about 50 miles over to the uh, west, and he's writing this letter from Corinth. And that was a scary place as well. In fact, it was so scary that the Lord appears to Paul in Corinth. And he says, don't hold your peace here, Paul. I have much people here. Because Paul apparently was shook. He was probably a little timid even for Paul. And and thinking, this is really a scary place. So Paul's in Corinth. And he's wondering, oh, what's going on back up north there? Oh, what's going on in Thessalonica? And we find that word comes back to Paul that things are going well up there in Macedonia. Acts 18.5 says that when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. That is there in Corinth. In other words, he gets this encouraging news and it encourages him. It emboldens him. Now he's pressed in the Spirit and he goes forward. Why? Because of these good tidings. Now, look back here in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 again. In verse number 6, he describes this. He says, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, notice these words, and brought us good tidings. 
It's kind of the same words or expression that we get gospel from. Good news. He brought us this good news. This good news came from way up north down there to Corinth, and it encouraged Paul greatly. Bible says in Proverbs 25, 25, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. That is exactly what Paul got. I don't know about you, but I like good news. Paul got some good news here. We read this over in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good. So Paul here is talking about some good tidings. Notice again in verse number 6. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith. Remember the preceding verse? He's saying, I'm I'm so concerned that the tempter has tempted you and tripped you up with your faith. But now he says in the next verse, Timothy came back and brought us good tidings of what? Of your faith. Of your faith. The news that thrilled Paul's soul was not the latest outcome of the Grecian games. You know, we get so excited about things that really don't matter much. We find here that Paul doesn't get good tidings of Timothy bringing back a sack of money. He gets good tidings about those people up in Thessalonica being faithful. Good tidings of your faith. And notice also in verse number 6 what it's connected with. Your faith and what? Charity. Your faith and love. You find those two coupled together quite often in the Bible. Faith and and love. I want you to eyeball those two real good in verse 6 because those are the dynamic duel really of of a vibrant Christian. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. Charity and faith. And you find them quite often in the Bible. We read in 1 John 3, 23 and this is his commandment that we should notice believe, there's faith, believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Those two graces are found together all over the place in the Bible. And it's kind of like where, where faith goes, love goes. And where love goes, faith goes. And, and it's kind of like they're Siamese twins and they're joined together. And God wants us to have both. We read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 that it mentions this faith which worketh by love. We are to have a faith that works by love. A faith that worketh by love. I've had faith without love. And, and, and I know more than once, more than I like to think about. I've, I've had faith, and you go, that's good. But it mentions a faith which worketh by love. God wants us to have both. We find in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. May God give us both. Do you have faith today? I hope you do. I hope you have a, a, a fiery faith. But what about love? We, we need a faith that worketh by love. God give us that love along with our faith. And then in verse number 6 again, he mentions that Timotheus brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and, notice at the end, that you have good remembrance of us always. Good remembrance of us always. Yeah, Paul says they're still following us. You're still uh, respecting us. You're still honoring us. You still love us. And, and, and we showed that 
They showed that by remembering. He mentions how they thought of him, the fondness they had for him, the affection they had for him. I attended a funeral this last week, and and, uh, at the funeral I was talking to the son of the deceased and and sharing some memories of the deceased, and, and the son began to cry because he fondly thought of his dad and the remembrance of his dad and the love that he had for his dad. Fond memories equal love. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3, Paul said this, I thank God that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. You know, we love folks by remembering them. You ever thought of that? Remembering things about them, situations they're struggling with. It means a lot to people. Uh, I hear uh, folks say this, and it warms my heart. If I get a hold of them about something, they get back to me and they say, thanks for thinking of me. Had somebody just yesterday sitting in here and they said, thanks for thinking of me. That means a lot to people. Notice in verse number six at the end, he speaks of them having good remembrance of them, always desiring greatly, Paul says, to see us as we also to see you. Paul says, I just, I'd give anything to see you again. And it wasn't his fault. He'd gotten run out of town. Basically, the, the, it had gotten so hot there, and his, his heart ached. He had this strong attachment to them, and it was mutual. There was this mutual love there. They loved Paul, and it's only natural. Paul had pointed them to Christ. Think of what a favor he had done coming into a heathen town. These folks are hell-bound, an eternity of fire, and Paul points them to Christ. And they loved him for that. About 75 miles from here, there is a a, a preacher that I'll be eternally grateful to because on March 5th, 1981, he was standing at his post. He was on guard. And when I walked into his office, he was there to point me to Christ. I'll always love him. I'll always honor him. I think one of the greatest compliments I've ever been given is by him. He said, no one that I know of has ever honored me more than you have. I've always tried to honor him. Because on that night, March 5th, 1981, when this lost, confused, 20-year-old, long hair walked into his office, he was there to lead me to Christ. I asked him in so many words, what's this born-again business? How can you be saved? And he led me to the cross that night. And he'll always have the preeminence of my affection for that. God bless him for that. I owe him so much. He's the one God used to keep me out of hell. And there's no way I could ever begin to pay that debt. I have good remembrance of him. And it's a mutual feeling. Paul thought well of the folks of Thessalonica. The folks of Thessalonica thought well of Paul. It was a reciprocating love. And, and he's writing this letter, and it's just almost you can feel the love gushing out of it here. Notice in verse number 6 again. He says, But now when Timotheus came from you to us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. Paul says it was so comforting. So comforting. Second Corinthians 7, verse 5. Paul says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us. 
It was some good news at this case as well that there were some Christians doing well. Paul needed some, some good news at this time. Paul had been mauled at Philippi. Paul had been mocked there in Athens. He had been dragged into court in Corinth. And here he is just trying to evangelize Europe, something God told him to do. And things are going bad. And he needed some, <laughs> some good news. You ever need some good news? This last week I was praying and um, Lord laid on my heart a gal in the church who's always here early and always sitting faithfully in the same spot. And uh, I thought, I, I thanked God for that, the, the faithfulness of that, that dear lady. And then we had church that night and I walked in there. She was in that spot early. And uh, I walked up to her and I said, you know, you're always here faithfully. And uh, that's such an encouragement to me. Her eyes welled up and tears started trickling down. She said, boy, I needed to hear that today. I needed to hear that today. A mutual encouragement. Paul needed some good news. And, and when Christians are encouraged or, or faithful, it is an encouraging thing. Those folks up north in Thessalonica had been steadfast, and it was so encouraging. Does our life encourage other Christians? That's the message. We're talking about encouraging faithfulness. Does, does our Christian life provoke other folks to faithfulness and good works? Well, we see the demonic futility and the dynamic faith. And then finally and quickly, we see this delightful fulfillment. And Paul mentions it in verse number 8. He says, For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. What's he talking about? He's saying now we can go on. Now life is worth living. I mean, in so many words, that's how we'd put it. If you stand fast in the Lord. Paul said, this is what gives me joy. I read this quote this last week. A joyless life is a lifeless life. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) A joyless life is a lifeless life. A lot of people are living a lifeless life because they don't have joy. Paul was joyful. You know why? Because he got good news of these folks from Thessalonica being faithful, and it filled Paul with joy. And he says this in verse number 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. I thought a lot about that statement this last week. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. I asked Brother Venom about it. I thought some more on it. I looked in some commentaries. I meditated upon it. For now we live. What did Paul mean by that? For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Well, in so many words, we breathe easier. We're encouraged. But more than that, it's kind of like talking about life being worth living because you're being faithful. And this infused life into Paul and vigor into Paul. And it made life worth living for him. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. We might not understand that, but Paul had a a different perspective on life. He really had a a, a different perception than the average American has. If you were to fill in the blank of what the average American would put in there, what would it be? For now we live if. What would they say? If we make a lot of money? If we have a nice house? If we get this degree and... And get this career. You know, you look at some of the things that mean so much to people and you scratch your head. I was talking this last week to a fellow who uh, is high up in a delivery company in town. 
And, and he said, I often get phone calls from somebody, and, and the voice on the other end, some gal will say, your delivery man walked across my lawn. He's heard it so many times, he just says now, well, ma'am, how do you mow your lawn without walking on it? Never thought of that. Good comeback. What you want to say is, ma'am, get a life, okay? Somebody walked on your lawn. For now we live, if nobody walks on my lawn, it's, it's incredible. Incredible. Or now we live if we're in vogue. Or now we live if we're, uh, we got all the latest stuff here. Can you picture Paul sitting outside of Best Buy the night before Black Friday for hours waiting to get the last gadget? Oh, now I live if I could just get this electronic gizmo. You, you know, what the average person would put there, the, the, the latest celebrity gossip or the national politics or whatever it might be, what is a big deal to us? For now we live if, if we make this money or, or if we get this stuff that will impress people. What is it that we want? What is it that offends us? What is it that we get indignant over? You get cut off in traffic or somebody gives you a dirty look or whatever? We need to get a life sometimes, honestly, folks. What is it that gets us upset? We, we split hairs over different philosophies. It's not worth it. Paul didn't waste any time with that. Paul said, now I live if you stand fast. Life's worth living. You know, he said this, or actually John said this. In 2 John 4, he said, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. John had the same heart. Now I live if, if people are faithful, if Christians are faithful. John said to Gaius in 3 John 1, 4, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He's talking to somebody apparently that he had led the Lord and Gaius was being faithful. And John said this with such sincerity, I have no greater joy than to know that my children, spiritually speaking, those I pointed to Christ, walk in truth. It really begs the question, how mature are we? What is it that we live for? Paul was able to say this, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. What are the things that we rejoice in? What are the things we get indignant about? It's really humbling, honestly. How mature are we? Paul said, when I was a child, I behaved as a child in so many words. And, and we as Christian people, how mature are we? What do we rejoice in? Maybe it's time to graduate to the next level. Because Paul says, for now I live. Now we live if you stand fast in Christ. What gets us excited? What gets us thrilled? We read this in 3 John 1, 3. John says, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. What was it that thrilled these greats of the first century? It was the faithfulness of other Christians. Tidings of faithfulness. Again, Paul wasn't focused on himself. Paul had died to self. Paul died daily. But he was nervous about something. What was it? How are those folks up, up at Thessalonica doing? His, his life was bound in others. That's the point I'm trying to make. Others. He was pulling for others. He was hoping for others. Continually pulling and hoping for other believers because the Christian religion is one of hope and pulling for other Christians. You can't miss that in the New Testament. May I say as a pastor, 
I want God's best for you. I really am pulling for you. I am praying for you. I am praying that you do well. I I can relate to what Paul says, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. And there are so many of you here today, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. And I want you to know what an encouragement it's been to me. We call that encouraging faithfulness. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.